3: Many of us know Hans Christian Andersen's children's story telling the sad experiences of the flax. How the flax seed is buried in the dark earth, then to raise its head and penetrate to the light of the sun. How its blue flower has to withstand the sun's heat and lashing by the sweeping rain until one day wicked people come and pull the poor plant root and all out of the ground by its hair. How then they torture it by drowning in water, roasting over a fire, beating with sticks, breaking and dressing it, heckling and combing it with hackle combs and thorns, spinning it to thread, weaving it into linen, cutting it, piercing it with needles, sewing it into shirts, which are worn till they are rags, drowned and pulped and calendared and dried into the paper upon
4: which its story is written. That was a passage from The Passion of the Flax, a lecture Eisler gave to the Folklore Society in London in 1949. In it, he examines the Christian symbolism and classical antecedents of the European folk tradition of mourning the suffering undergone by the flax plant as it is harvested and pounded into linen, a subject he first treated forty years earlier in Velton Mantle. The foreword to the essay, written by one of the journal's editors, begins in a familiar way. The editor explains Eisler's presentation had been a big hit with the crowd, so the Society asked him for a version to publish in their journal. He sent them an essay twice as long as his original lecture and with hundreds of footnotes. Eisler and the editor had a back-and-forth correspondence, like the ones Eisler had had so many times before, about how many footnotes the journal would allow him to keep. But then Eisler, whose health had been failing for a long time, suddenly developed a serious illness and had to be hospitalized, first in London, before being moved to Oxted in Surrey. When he died on December 17, 1949, the still unrevised essay version of The Passion of the Flax was on his bedside. He had given the lecture 29 days before. In this episode, we will look at the bitter disappointments of his last years in England, as well as the really brilliant work he produced during that period, which consisted of the most Eislerian books and essays that he ever wrote. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is episode number nine Vanity of Vanities.
0: Let's pass a decor at be on mescar in ikira. We're married at parim, yom par yom boach, ashem mesketem de zahar. Oro, hey oro, shuhuru, benik parin, kama hin, bashla kwa, alpe, hak parim, it's
4: Of all the papers that i found while researching Robert Eisler, one stands out to me. It's the intake form that Eisler had to fill out when he emigrated to England after leaving Buchenwald. It's one of those relatively rare occasions when you're really asked to define yourself in very specific ways, and that's why it's so interesting. He gives his name as Robert Eisler, no middle name gives his permanent address as Unterach, where Lilly was still living, in Austria. He lists himself as a Ph.D. and as a fellow of the Austrian Historical Institute at the University of Vienna, but he also lists his position with the Institute for Intellectual Cooperation. As his special fields, he lists history of Christian origins, political messianism, history of internationalism, comparative history of religions, and history and theory of money. Under languages, he writes in the third person, can lecture and has lectured often in English, French, Italian, and in his own language, German. When asked about what other kind of work he's capable of doing, he says he's acted as a monetary advisor and gives the name and address of the investor's office that he worked for in England. When asked about his religion, he declares himself to be a reformed Jew. And when asked if there's any country he will not be relocated to, He says Russia. The reasons he gives are his lack of language facilities and his strong, individualistic, and liberal convictions. So, this is the picture of himself that Eisler was presenting when he showed up in England. Eisler was in pretty bad shape from his time in the camps. The hard labor had probably compounded his earlier war injuries and the long term effects of malaria, as well as a normal aging process. He was suffering from angina pectoris and severe pain in his hands and shoulders from bone degeneration, and he may have developed diabetes. Lily talks in one letter about him having sugar in the blood. Esther Simpson, the Secretary of the Society for the Protection of Science and Learning, tried to get grants or jobs for Eisler and corresponded with him for the first few years he was in England. On September 12, 1944, she sent Eisler a short note.
1: Dear Dr. Eisler, We are trying to keep the records of this society as up-to-date as possible. We have not heard from you since 1941, and we should welcome your news. Could you please tell us what employment you now have? We sincerely hope that you are happily settled in thoroughly congenial work and surroundings. Yours sincerely, Esther Simpson,
4: Secretary. Two days later, she received from Eisler four pages, covered front and back with crabbed handwriting.
3: Dear Madam, I am much obliged by your kind inquiry. I have no employment whatever. I am settled in congenial surroundings, but on the basis of my wife's hard work. Being an Austrian baroness in her own right, and heiress to considerable land property in Salzburg and Upper Austria, confiscated and divided up among the tenants because she refused to divorce me, she is now cooking four meals a day for six and most of the time eight and sometimes ten people, week and Sundays alike, in return for which we have two comfortable rooms, full board, heating, lighting, laundry, and one return bus ticket a week to Oxford so that I can go up to the libraries. The owners of the house are charming, delightful country people, the best hosts one could desire, and it would be ingratitude to fate to complain. But. As you can imagine, it is not conducive to self-respect to live on the work of one's wife, and the situation is not altered by the fact that I give a few Latin, French, etc. lessons to the children of the family and of some neighbors, which enables me to pay the typist to my stamps and newspapers. I also stoke the central heating and ideal boiler on the days when my angina pectoris allows me to do it.
4: We'll get back to the contents of this letter in a minute. But first, I want to provide a counterpoint. This is a letter that Lily Eisler wrote in March of 1944, that same year, to her niece Rosalie in America, who was a passionate Quaker anti-war activist.
5: My dear Rosalie, I am still handicapped, writing with my broken arm, so I hope you will not mind if I do it on the typewriter. Letters are but poor substitutes for seeing each other and having a good talk. Everything you tell me in your letter was of greatest interest, how busy you are and what a lot of good work you do. One can only wish that your endeavors bear some fruit. I am afraid that, although it seems sheer madness to us, there will always be wars. People don't seem to learn, and as long as one has to deal with the Nazis and their consorts, I can't see any way one can avoid them. Of course... We must always try our best. Robert constantly quotes a French saying, if he does it too often, it begins to get on my nerves, although I can quite see how wonderful it is. We must act as if we can do something, knowing we can do nothing. It is not very encouraging, but there you are. My work is quite agreeable. At least we are without worries. Everything is provided for us. We live, so to say, au pair. I prefer it to being paid. I am much more like a friend than anything else, and Miss Lyon is a charming creature and so good-looking, too. They are delighted with my cooking and always come to thank me and see how delicious it was. I have arranged that, as a rule, we do not have our meals together. One is so much more independent this way although it makes more trouble having to dish twice, but it's worth it. Robert is very busy writing different articles. The next one will be published in the Hibbert Journal. Since I broke my arm, I do not do such a lot of typing. It rather tires me, especially beside my routine work. I must make an end now. It's getting terribly late. Robert is in Reading giving a lecture in the Quaker College. And I meant to go to bed very early, for once. But with all the interruptions, it is nearly midnight, and I must say goodnight. Your affectionate aunt, Lily.
4: In the next part of his letter, Iser explains what happened when he arrived at Oxford to take his position. As you
3: know, I was elected in 1938 at the Recommendations, a Professor Gilbert Murray and A.B. Cook to the Wild Lectureship Oxford University. While I was interred for 15 months in Dachau and Buchenwald concentration camps, the university appointed a successor whom I found in my place when I arrived in Oxford in September 1939. The late Sir Arthur Evans, whom I had known since I was his guest in Crete in 1904, took me in his care to see the late Vice-Chancellor Gordon who said to me and repeated it to Sir Arthur, Don't worry, he is sure to resign. No Englishman would profit of such a situation. My successor, who had a full professorship at Leeds University, saw no reason why he should postpone his three-year term and refused to consider any such arrangement. So... I was informed, again in Sir Arthur's presence by the late Vice Chancellor Gordon, that I would be allowed to give the 1938 lecture that I had been prevented from delivering in 1939 under a special decree so that I would remain eligible for the next three-year term of the Wild Lectureship when I would be re-elected, but when 1941 came... (laughs) The former vice-chancellor of Calcutta was elected instead, Gordon and H. L. Fisher having both died in the meantime. I lectured by invitation for Canon Simpson on a subject of sociology, and for Professor H. Price on epistemology, philosophy of physical science, and theory of values. The latter, for
4: three terms, are publique
3: et gratis.
4: In May of 1940, a woman named Mary Beaton, who must have been a friend of Eisler's, wrote to the Society for the Protection of Science and Learning because she was concerned by the rumors that the British were going to round up refugees and place them in internment camps. Lily Eisler was already on the way to England via Italy, on a Japanese boat apparently, which is odd. And Miss Beaton wanted to know if Robert would even be free when she arrived.
1: Dear Miss Beaton, Thank you for your letter of May 20th. I am afraid it is impossible to say at the present moment whether there will be a general internment of German and Austrian refugees. We are naturally doing our best on behalf of the scholars registered with us. As you point out, internment falls exceptionally hard on people who have already spent some time in a German concentration camp. The point of what you say is only too clear to us, but at the present moment there is a tremendous wave of suspicion and fear, which is hard to counter with rational arguments. As soon as we can, we shall approach the Home Office about the release of certain categories of scholars already interned. Tomorrow, I am attending an emergency meeting in London on this very matter. You may be assured that we will do our best, but it will be in the face of very great odds. Yours sincerely, Esther Simpson, Secretary.
4: Mary Beaton's fears proved to have been justified on June 25th when Eisler was sent to a refugee camp on the Isle of Man. In August of 1940, Norman Bentwich, a Zionist lawyer who was employed at the time by the British Ministry of Information, contacted the society to make an appeal for Eisler's release. Esther Simpson wrote back and explained the process for getting a prisoner out.
1: Dear Professor Bentwich, Thank you for your letter of August 16th about Dr. Robert Eisler. Dr. Eisler is well known to us and I am glad to say that an appeal has already been made on his behalf by Oxford University. We are in touch with the Registrar of Oxford University and have agreed not to duplicate applications. The applications in ours, in my case, pass through the same channels, viz. the Appeal Tribunal set up by the British Academy, the Royal Society and the Vice-Chancellor's Committee. In view of Dr Eisler's eminence, political history and important backing, I hope it will not be long before he is released. He spent some time in a Nazi concentration camp. Yours sincerely, Esther Simpson, Secretary.
4: While it was still an internment camp, the Isle of Man was a picnic next to Dachau and Buchenwald. Prisoners were even allowed to visit museums and give lectures, which Eisler, of course, did. Years later, in 1947, Gilbert Murray recalled a story he heard about Eisler's stay on the Isle of Man that will surprise no one who has been listening to this podcast.
6: One of his fellow prisoners on the Isle of Man said Eisler was a great nuisance, insisting on the best hour and room for lecture and so on, but that his lectures were about the most interesting he had ever heard.
4: Eisler was released on September 5th due to his heart trouble. For two years, he continued to carry on a friendly correspondence with one of the guards, Captain Robert Marshall, whose daughter was an archaeologist. Let's get back to Eisler's 1944 letter to Esther Simpson. Describing the events that followed the wild readership fiasco, Eisler wrote,
3: When I propose to Professor P, who very keenly feels that there ought to be university lectures on the history of art, as there are even at the smallest continental universities, to lecture over the allegedly enigmatic subjects of a number of Renaissance pictures inspired by classical literature, A subject to which I have devoted years of research and written a big book, the typescript of which Professor P liked very much, and when he prepared to issue the necessary invitation, it was opposed by the faculty who advised me in my own interest to confine myself to the one subject on which I was then lecturing for Professor Price, to which I replied that my only interest left was in my obituary in the times.
4: This bit about his only interest left being his obituary in the Times is something he says again in another letter, just as he also tells two different people that he has arranged for his body to be sold to the anatomy lab for 40 pounds to settle his debts. It's not clear how ironic or serious he is being, but he's definitely in a dark place. The book to which he is referring is in an incomplete typescript form at the Warburg. He was going to call it the conventional titles and true meaning of some hitherto unexplained masterpieces of Italian Renaissance painting. It was never published, although some parts were turned into essays for art history journals. Then Iser turned to the Septuagint. The Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, supposedly translated by 70 or 72, learned scholars around the 3rd century BCE. With the wild readership off the table, Iser was looking for something else to do. He saw a call for papers for work on the Hebrew Bible and art. He decided to submit what he had been working on with Septuagint. His frustration must have gone up to another level when he saw that not only was some old Oxford Don occupying this post uncontested, but that he wasn't even bothering to give the lectures he was getting paid to give.
3: I had not one, but... A whole series of lectures ready in typescript on the earliest illustrated edition of the Greek Bible, which I can prove, from a hitherto overlooked passage in the first book of Maccabees, to have been produced before the time of the Maccabean uprising. I could have illustrated these lectures with lantern slides, reproducing the existing copies, 11th century AD, of these Hellenistic illustrations, contemporary and identical in style with the oldest Pompeian wall paintings, I could have had an audience for these lectures and they would have provided the essential basis for the last published series of Eschreika lectures held by Dr. Levine of the British Museum on the Hebrew Bible and Art. For many years, the holder of this lectureship had announced the one lecturer term required by the statute of the foundation, but never held it because no audience was forthcoming to listen to what was announced as the subject. As soon as it became known that I proposed to apply for the advertised lectureship, the pro-temporal holder, Canon Ganby, Regina Professor of Hebrew, told me quite coolly that for many years a custom had been established of allocating this sinecure lecture twice to the same holder, and that he meant to keep it for another three years' period. Naturally, I withdrew my application so as not to inconvenience the electors, the advertisement turning out to be a pure formality.
4: Another of Eisler's projects from this period, and another reflection of his general outlook on the world, is Vanity of Vanities. His own text-critical reconstruction of the original version of the poem most of us know as Ecclesiastes, and some of you might know as a basis for the folk song Turn, 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 written by Pete Seeger in 1950 and turned into a hit single by the Birds 15 years later. It makes more sense as a folk song than it does as a book of the Bible, and Eisler sort of thinks he knows why. I also
3: prepared in a typescript a reconstruction with elaborate commentary of the biblical book erroneously known as Ecclesiastes, the original and genuine text of which I have been able to publish in the Hibbert Journal of 1942. Dr. L. P. Jacks kindly condensed my commentary in an introductory page to this most beautiful, most tragic, wholly fatalistic, nihilistic, and agnostic poem hitherto hidden in the scripture text. Of course, nobody outside the circle of readers of the Hibbert Journal and the Unitarian Enquirer has taken any notice of the recovery of one of the world's
4: finest poems. Eisler's reconstruction and translation of Ecclesiastes, or Koheleth as it's also known, is quite a story too. In 1942, the same year he debated the Anglican theologian Austin Ferrer at the Socratic Club on whether Christ rose from the dead or not, Eisler proposed to the BBC a broadcast reading of his reconstruction of Ecclesiastes for its Ash Wednesday programming. The idea was rejected. Four years later, in 1946, he approached them again, and when they rejected it again, he claimed religious discrimination and took his case to the Joint Committee on Matters of Religious Liberty. He wrote a letter to Sir Ernest Barber, the chair of the committee, who had apparently just published a letter on the topic of religious liberty in the Times. Dear Sir
3: Ernest, Your letter in the Times of August 16th prompts me to inquire whether your committee is prepared to protest against the freedom of persuasion being denied in this very country by the BBC to Unitarians and Freethinkers. Not only that is the case, but modernists are debarred from discussing in the most respectful way any of the results of biblical criticism. It has been my good fortune to unearth under a mass of debris the genuine unadulterated text of the greatest poem ever written in Hebrew the Sadducean Vanity of Vanities, misnamed by tendentious rabbinic misvocalization and consequent mistranslation, the preacher in our Bible versions, the true title being Words to the Assembly, i.e. Speech from the Throne of the Sons of David, King in Jerusalem. The text, a monument of tragic despair, the most topical and moving part of the whole Old Testament, written immediately before the Maccabean Revolt, has been printed in the Hibbert Journal, April 1942. The director of religious broadcasting will not allow this poem, every word of which is in the Bible itself, to be broadcast, with a specially composed musical introduction and finale and a short, perfectly reverent historic introduction. Your Cambridge colleague Lord Russell has read the poem and you can easily do the same. I am also willing to put at your disposition to be judged by the exacting standard applied by historical criticism to the elimination of interpolations and to the restorations of logical order in a fragmented and disarranged text the still unpublished edition of the Sadducean text with its pharisaic interpolations not printed in the Hibbert journal and not necessary to the public, which can appreciate great poetry when they hear it. Is it or is it not the case that the fight for freedom of religious persuasion and education begins at home? With the best thanks in advance for a kind reply to this last question. I remain with great respect, your obedient servant, Robert Eisler.
4: The Lord Russell Eisler is talking about is, of course, Bertrand Russell, teacher of T.S. Eliot and Ludwig Wittgenstein. Here's a particularly poignant passage from Eisler's reconstruction of Vanity of Vanities.
3: I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that they might see that they themselves are beasts, For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth that the spirit of man goeth upward, and the spirit
4: of the beast goeth downward to the earth? In Eisler's reading of the text, the poet says there is no distinction between humans and animals. There's no such thing as a human soul. Men are beasts. But what kind of beasts they are is something Eisler won't decide until he writes man into wolf. Let's get back to Eisler's letter to Esther Simpson. This is the credit side of my account
3: for the four last year's work. On the opposite side of the ledger, I find nothing but your society informing me in 1941 that no funds were available, which is, I presume, as true now as it was then. Here is one of those
4: refusals Eisler is talking about.
1: Dear Dr. Eisler, I regret to have to tell you that our Allocation Committee, after discussing your application very thoroughly and with all possible consideration, found themselves unable to give you the grant for which you have asked. As I informed you in an earlier letter, the committee are not accepting new applications for grants except where there are very definite prospects of early absorption in paid employment, and they are having to cancel a number of existing grants. The committee expressed the hope that you would be able to find assistance from some other sources so that you could continue your interesting work. Yours sincerely, Esther Simpson, Secretary.
4: Here's how he concludes the letter. I should
3: like to say that a good deal might still be done without any expense to speak of. I should greatly appreciate an invitation to lecture for a return ticket and overnight hospitality in any college for one or two consecutive hours a week at Cambridge on any of my above-mentioned subjects. I have in due form offered my service to the Board of Extramural Studies and the Workers' Education Center at Oxford, also the Office for Lecture to the Forces, presented the required recommendations from the Vice Provost of Oxford, Professor Gilbert Murray, Sir John Myers, been interviewed by two gentlemen who said they would let me know the decision in due course and never did. If the Society wanted to do something, one would think that something could be done to alleviate one's feeling of being utterly useless and unwelcome. I have therefore decided to give you an exact survey of the facts, although I feel sure that the only result will be to convince you more than ever, that I'm a very square peg, impossible to fit into any of the well-rounded and polished but rather narrow holes available in this country. It does not matter a great deal, since I have the small creature comforts I need, and fate has been so much kinder to me than to so many Polish and Czech and French scholars. Also, I have arranged with the Oxford Professor of Anatomy, who has very kindly undertaken to utilize for teaching purposes and the benefit of science, what I shall leave here when I finally depart from this queer world and just to relieve my guarantors from what I understand might be a final forty pounds to close my account. I'm afraid this letter does not make nice reading and will do no earthly good to anybody, so I leave you full liberty, whether you want to put it inside your file or consign it to the waste paper basket and the salvage. I'm keeping no double and remain with best thanks for your kind
4: inquiry. Yours sincerely, Robert Eisler. Luckily for us, Esther Simpson, who I should point out genuinely seems to have done anything and everything she could to help Eisler, kept this letter for the files, which is how it came down to me. After the break, we'll talk about the important and highly personal work that Eisler did in this period on astrology, ethics, and folklore.
0: Sa decor at paruag, be on mescar in kirav. Bemmer gat marim yom par yapuag, asembes ketembe zahav. Uru ha yoru, shuhuru beni parin
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. In
4: 1944, after he read a newspaper advertisement from a wholesaler offering the enigma of the fourth gospel unbound at a discounted price, Eisler wrote to the publisher, Methuen, and demanded an explanation. If they were refusing to bind and sell his book, he wanted them to send the copies to him so he could do it himself. Methuen wrote back and told him that of the 1,500 copies printed, only 360 had been sold and 590 were destroyed by German bombs during the Blitz, which left 500 that remained unbound to be sold as is. There was no demand for the 40 bound copies currently in stock. Methuen also turned down Eisler's proposed book on astrology. Publishers were generally unwilling to take on any of his new projects, due in part to the severe paper shortage caused by the war. This may have been one of the reasons why he became so fixated on newspaper astrology columns, which also suffered because of the paper shortage, but did not disappear. In 1946, Eisler finally successfully published a lavishly illustrated book, The Royal Art of Astrology, drawn from some of his earlier work in Velton Mantle. At first, I didn't know what to do with the Royal Art of Astrology for this podcast. But then I noticed Nicholas Campion's essay on the history of astrology in The Occult World, an edited volume I've been using to teach my global occult class ever since it came out. Professor Campion is a historian of astrology and cultural astronomy and the director of the Sophia Center for the Study of Cosmology in Culture at Bath Spa University. I asked Professor Campion to give me some background on astrology in Great Britain in the 1940s, which is what Eisler is mostly focused on. But first I was curious about how he came to his particular subfield.
7: Uh, This brings together two of my lifelong passions, really, because from about the age of seven, I was fascinated by mythology, and that then led into a a deep fascination with history. And I would say that every fibre in my being, physical and psychic, breathes history. And I also developed a childhood interest in astrology through my mother every day at the breakfast table reading out the horoscopes from a newspaper, and I was fascinated that there was a whole newspaper dedicated to reporting what had happened on the previous day for everybody, a little section forecasting what was going to happen on the coming day for you.
4: As Professor Camping explains, Isler wasn't the only one getting worked up about astrology in Britain in the 1940s.
7: Uh, Astrology was sufficiently well known for there to be a mass observation exercise on it in the 40s, during the Second World War, because there was a practicing uh, psychic called Helen Duncan, who made a forecast concerning the sinking of a British battleship in Argentina, just off Argentina River Plate. And um, she made this apparent forecast before the event was known. And this produced extreme alarm amongst the authorities, because, you know, forecasts of defeat could damage morale and so on. And so there was a mass observation exercise on astrology with uh, people reading the horoscope columns for a week and so on and reporting on them. The uh, conclusion was that astrology was completely harmless, because what astrologers said was so vague that it could be interpreted in any way and of course that is actually the nature of horoscope columns
4: i want to say a few words about what a mass observation project is because it was totally unknown to me mass observation was a project started in 1937 by the anthropologist tom harrison the poet charles madge and the filmmaker humphrey jennings who had all met as cambridge students Their idea was to recruit about 500 untrained volunteers from the general public to record their own thoughts, feelings, and actions, as well as everything they saw or heard others saying and doing relating to a particular contemporary event. Taken all together, these could be used to produce a real picture of a culture at a given moment. One famous mass observation was centered on King Edward VIII's abdication in 1936 to marry Divorcee Wallace Simpson. And as Professor Campion mentioned, there was also one focused on astrology. In fact, Eisler starts off his book by quoting from that
7: mass observation exercise. So it was obviously still around in the culture, and books were being published on it. And Isler comments on some of these books and how they got their predictions dramatically wrong. One of the, um, the, the great blunders in astrology was uh, that there was a forecast that uh, Hitler was being born under the sign of Taurus. And in fact, he was born right on the cusp between Aries, ruled by Mars, and Taurus, ruled by Venus. But, you know, different people having been born under different signs. Taurus is ruled by Venus, the goddess of peace. So there was a forecast that Hitler, being a man of peace, would avoid war. And this forecast was made at a gathering of astrologers in the north of England, if my memory serves me right, in early 1939. And it got some, some public traction. This was reported on in the press. So, you know, it, it's difficult to think of a worse Thing for astrologers to say in public that Hitler was a a man of peace and would seek a diplomatic solution rather than going to war. And I'm sure that forecast was made out of wishful thinking. But there you go. This is the kind of thing that Eisler focuses on as a way of saying that the astrology of that time was completely incompetent.
4: In the Royal Art of Astrology, and I think this is an ironic title. Eisler lashes out at newspaper astrologers, who he sees as basically having reverted to the old geocentric model of the universe that he so painstakingly deconstructed in Velton Mantle. But he also seems to be saying that our attempt at living through a scientific worldview is always opposed by some deep part of our psyche. Here is how he puts it. The savage and the primitive of the so-called prelogical,
3: more exactly the pre age of homo faber and homo-sapiens unable to distinguish facts from the figments of his imagination, is always with us. What is more important still, he is always within
4: us. He was also indignant that as his fortunes continued to wane, unscrupulous people were getting rich and famous off of the ignorance of others. In Eisler's mind, one of the main offenders was R.H. Naylor, the man who invented British astrology.
7: R.H. Naylor was probably the most famous astrologer in Britain in the 1930s. He had begun his career as a protégé of a man uh, whose pseudonym was Cairo. Count Louis Hamon, I think, was his, he claimed, was his real name, Cairo. So after, you know, Chiromance, he's in hand reading. And he was a society fortune teller, hand reader, astrologer, And so Cairo would be offered work and he would farm it out to R.H. Naylor, including uh, some big lectures in London, lectures on astrology attended by hundreds of people on astrology and the current world situation. And then in 1930, when Princess Margaret was born, who is the current queen's younger sister, the major Sunday newspaper, the Sunday Express, commissioned an article on her birth chart. And uh, and Naylor ended up writing it. And this then resulted in huge public interest. He was invited back and he then began to talk about, not not a horoscope column as we would know it now with the 12 paragraphs, but uh, if you were born under Aries, you know this is important for this week, and that then morphed into the use of the twelve paragraph column. The twelve paragraph horoscope column itself, uh, until recently, I understood was launched in um, a specialist journal in in the states called American Astrology, I think in nineteen thirty. But one of my former students has uncovered columns in previous women's magazines in Britain. So. There's a little prehistory there, but either way, Naylor then becomes the focal character. So he he's one of the people that um, Isler talks about. Naylor became very prominent because um, there was the famous airship disaster right oh. in the early '30s. The R one hundred one, and it it crashed, burst into flames, and Naylor is credited with having predicted that in one of his early. Sunday Express horoscopes, and so then he becomes Leila, the man who predicted the 101 disaster.
4: Throughout the Royal Art of Astrology, Eisler argues that not only do astrologers ignore the history of the ancient cosmological systems they have borrowed, but they are also ignorant of science, which he prides himself on keeping up with. For instance, he excoriates astrologers for calculating birth charts down to the minute, but ignoring the amount of time it takes light from distant stars to reach the Earth which would throw off the whole calculation completely. Reading between the lines of the Royal Art of Astrology, you can see how Eisler feels he has been dismissed and marginalized by people he considers to be parochial and ignorant. And this is really starting to color his view of England as a whole. In this passage, it's hard not to think that Eisler is talking about himself and his neighbors, not to mention the landlords whose boilers he is stoking the few dozens
3: of living men capable of really understanding the general theory of relativity, the few hundred who could grasp at least the principles of the now obsolete special relativity theory, the few thousands who have mastered the higher mathematics necessary for understanding Professor Milne's kinematic cosmology are the contemporary and have to consort in a friendly and helpful way with men and women who cannot and will not even try to understand the intricacies of elementary geometry, with people who cannot be made to comprehend as much of physics and chemistry as we try to teach in our secondary schools. The scholars steeped in classical culture, conversant with several old oriental languages, and well read in all the literatures which have influenced our own outlook upon this world, dwells in the same street and sometimes in the same blocks of flats with otherwise quite efficient and congenial neighbors knowing less than a thousand words of their own English mother tongue and never reading anything but the
4: tabloid newspapers and mass-produced detective novels. In 1946, the same year in which he published The Royal Art of Astrology, The Society for the Protection of Science and Learning wrote and suggested to Eisler, as they were to all refugees, that he should become a naturalized citizen of the UK in order to help his job prospects. This is how he responded.
3: Many thanks for your circular letter of the 20th of March, 1945, re-Naturalization, for which I am much obliged. I have not the slightest intention to apply for naturalization because I have the strongest conscientious objections against abandoning the allegiance to one's native country, as a condition of becoming a citizen of another, to whom one owes already, as a resident, the same allegiance as the citizens born into it, as has quite recently been stated by the Lord's Justices judging the
4: case of the traitor Joyce. William Joyce was an American fascist who was raised in Ireland and lived in Britain. During the war, he broadcast Nazi propaganda in English under the name Lord Haw Haw. He was eventually tried for treason against the Crown, which his defense team argued he couldn't be charged with as a U.S. citizen. The courts ruled otherwise and sentenced him to death. In the next part of the letter, Eisler takes a swipe at the British policy of appeasement toward the Nazis. The policy that was in place when Hitler annexed Austria. He also proposes an unconventional new visa system for scholars, which he had already been working out in the mid-twenties during his brief career as a diplomat.
3: I have the intention of applying to the newly appointed representative of the Austrian government for a new Austrian passport, instead of the abominable German document forced upon me in consequence. Of the fact that the invitation and occupation of my country by the enemies of mankind was tolerated and even de jure recognized by Mr. Chamberlain's government. On this German passport, I had obtained a British visa valid for a sojourn of six months, which expired February 1940. I propose to apply for and hope to obtain on my future Austrian passport a new visa, if possible for a longer period than six months maybe for a lifetime, which in any case cannot be long for a man of fifty-one suffering from heart disease acquired in the book involved. I shall be thankful to the Society for supporting, if they see their way to doing it, my application for such a new visa, which might be needed quite soon since there is a possibility of my being invited to deliver a lecture or two in Switzerland, after which I naturally expect to return to this place." To such a visa, I should feel morally entitled under the above-described circumstances. In my humble opinion, which I would thank you for submitting to the Board of the Society, this organization should start a campaign for the restoration of an international res publica eruditorum by re-establishing the medieval jus ubicumque Dukindi for the holders of a doctor's diploma of any university anywhere admitted through membership of such an autonomous supranational body. This would involve nothing more than the purely theoretical abolition of teaching and research posts described in the advertisements for public appointments as reserved for natives of the respective country, leaving intact the existing right of every university to choose the candidate they want, and to refuse those they do not want for whatever
4: reason they may have. For all the non-classicists listening, res publica eruditorum basically means a republic of the erudite, or a republic of scholars. And Yusubikunque Dokindi docendi is the right to teach. So Eisler is basically proposing a European Union-style system for scholars. He goes on to talk about the Royal Art of Astrology and the other projects he is working on.
3: I am also just publishing a book, The Royal Art of Astrology, of 9,000 words with 16 plates and 19 illustrations at Herbert Joseph's London, the first book in the English language written from the scientific and historic point of view, about what was once a science now known as astronomy, and is now a superstition believed, by three-fifths of the population, nothing being done about it by the BBC, which, on the contrary, allowed female astrologer to the stars of Hollywood to broadcast crude propaganda in favor of this fashionable nay-science, which prepares, as Mr. Tom Harrison has shown, the ground for totalitarian dictatorship and abject mass servitude to an alleged fatality, My large monograph on the dance Macabre, accepted by Professor Onions from Medium Ivunis, now to be printed as soon as the next number can be put in hand by Blackwell. An abridged version of two chapters of my sociology of war and peace, still in progress, has been published by Dr. L.T. Jacks in the Heber Journal. Also a number of reviews. All this has brought in just as much money as the typist and correspondence involved has cost me, and am still living, as when I last reported, on the long hours of domestic work of my wife for this large house in which we enjoy hospitality. As to my further plans, I have made arrangements with Professor Clark of the Anatomy Department of Oxford University for service to scientific research to be performed passively when my active service to a common cause is bound to end.
4: Yours sincerely, Robert Eisler. The file on Robert Eisler at Oxford has archived not only the letters he wrote and received, but letters written about him to other people. Looking at those, you can see that by this time, people were getting understandably frustrated by what they saw as his uncooperative attitude. Even his old friend Gilbert Murray, who had recommended him for the jobs at Oxford and the League of Nations, had soured on him. When someone at the Society wrote to Murray and asked what to do about Eisler, this was his reply.
6: September 13, 1947. Dear Miss Ursel, Dr. Eisler is rather a problem. He is a man of immensely wide learning and a brilliant lecturer. Arthur Evans and I, and some expert whose name I forget, warmly recommended him for the wild lectureship. But he is rather slapdash, and often wild in his theories, and his more methodish fellow-countrymen are greatly down upon him, and say he is a charlatan. It would be more true to say he is a very learned and somewhat reckless amateur. He is an Austrian Jew and was formerly rich with, I believe, a beautiful estate. His wife is now a cook and he writes and does odd jobs. I'm extremely sorry for him. I return home next week and will gladly answer any further questions about him. Yours sincerely, Gilbert Murray.
4: Eisler never got a position at a university. But the late 1940s saw the publications of essays on ancient navigation, metallurgy, Greek philosophy, and the folklore surrounding flax harvesting and linen papermaking, which we discussed at the top of the episode, as well as one final unfinished book on ancient cosmology, the manuscript of which is at Oxford. One of its most readable essays, Dance Macabre, or Dance Macabre, takes on the contested etymology of the English word macabre, and traces it to the name of the Hebrew society of gravediggers called the Mechabrim, those invisible Jews who performed that unwholesome task in Europe from at least the 4th century. In the last year of his life, Eisler published an essay on ethics called The Empiric Basis of Moral Obligation that laid out his position regarding religion, which he has spent so many years writing and thinking about and which was the cause of so much of his troubles. He identifies himself as agnostic, though he doesn't like that term. I submit that it was an
3: unfortunate day on which Thomas Henry Huxley took thought and invented what he conceived to be the appropriate title of agnostics for free thinkers, determined to start their thinking from the radical position of Cartesian skepticism, doubting the whole of our traditional, alleged knowledge. As I have tried to show we are not agnostics who boast of knowing nothing, while other people know not even that.
4: The Empiric Basis of Moral Obligation is a perfect example of the lecture style that hypnotized and delighted his audiences, drawing on his earlier work on the Gospel of John, value theory, and free thought, as well as foreshadowing of man and a wolf with its talk of human beings as a herd and predatory violence. It also gives a very clear idea of how he saw his place in the world.
3: Although there was not in never was, a single human herd of herds, Although there is as yet no power to defend the interests of all mankind against the assault of predatory violence, there is an esprit de corps of all men, whatever language they may use to express their thought, who are sincerely devoted to the service of the one supreme aim, the search of homo sapiens for knowledge and truth. It is their voice reaching out to the furthest distances of the inhabited earth and signaling by means of waves harnessed to their service by scientific discovery which condemns unanimously the accursed group egotism and anarchism of the single, big, and small nations refusing to surrender the mean and deceptive illusion which they call their sovereignty and their alleged right to absolute national self-determination and autonomy. It is the voice of the seekers for truth which has spoken up throughout history, carrying conviction without resorting either to fraud or to violence. The voice is still drowned by the roar of the great strong wind that rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks of New Mexico, by the rumble of the earthquake and the crackling of the fires of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and all of which the Lord was not. It is as yet a still, small voice, but in it is the truth. It is the voice of all we hold sacred,
4: for which we are willing to live and, if need be, to die. When Eisler died, he got not one, but two obituaries in the times. The second one, written by Cyril Goldsmith, the scion of a powerful Anglo-Jewish banking family, shows us Eisler's last days through the eyes of a friend.
6: Some words of tribute are due to Robert Eisler, from an English friend of over 20 years. In loyalty to this country and family, but with full knowledge of his peril, he returned to Austria just before it was invaded by the Nazis, where in the cruel course of events he suffered forced labor in the Buchenwald and Dachau camps. Considerable pressure at the highest level of Nazi authority in the end procured his sudden release just before the outbreak of war in 1939. He then came to this country through Italy and Switzerland, In spite of the treatment he had received, which left a permanent mark on his health, he maintained a marvellous freedom from bitterness. As a lecturer in English, he was supreme, developing abstruse argument with intriguing simplicity and clearness. Though possessed of encyclopedic knowledge, he was entirely devoid of intellectual arrogance. In his search for truth, however, he was vehement in criticism of shams and superstition. With the ignorant and young, he was tolerance itself. It was always the teacher's fault if the teaching missed its mark. He worked to the end, even when he knew it was near. Il faut agir, he often said in the words of a Swedish ambassador to the court of Louis XVI. Comme si on pouvait faire quelque chose, sachant bien qu'on ne puisse si rien. We must act, as if we can do something. Knowing we can do nothing.
4: Eisner's story didn't have a happy ending, but I think it's worth something that now, 70 years later, there's at least a chance that some people will rediscover this very unusual man and his head full of ideas. This podcast officially starts tomorrow, and I'm under contract with Palgrave to write an expanded English edition of the afterward I wrote for the Italian translation of Man into Wolf. I've thought for years now that Robert Eisler's story and his work would resonate with people if it were put in front of them. Now I guess we'll find out. This concludes the story of Robert Eisler. And now that it's all out there, instead of coming back next week to record a 10th episode, I've decided to let it sit for a while. Let it find an audience. See if I get any feedback. And then after I've had a chance to process how this whole thing has gone, I'll come back for a 10th episode and talk about what this project has accomplished, what it hasn't accomplished, if I should do another one in the future, and if so, what about, and also revisit Man Into Wolf itself, the book that started it all. Hopefully I'll also have some more news about the upcoming Palgrave Pivot volume. And thanks to Rich Reagan, I also have two brand new, never-before-seen photos of Robert and Lily Eisler taken in England in 1944. I put them on the Facebook page for this podcast, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. I'd like to thank my guest, Nicholas Campion. For this week's episode, the voice of Robert Iser was provided by Caleb Crawford, with additional voices by Brian Evans and Kiara Ridpath. Throughout the podcast, I have received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wascheleski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Beseda, recorded by Ilyakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Special thanks also go to the Warburg Institute and the School of Advanced Study at the University of London and the Griffith Institute at the University of Oxford.
0: I am a